Okay. So, today, what are we doing today? Um, today is the most famous Old Testament story in the Bible. Uh, it's legendary. You know it before I even say it. You know what I'm going to say. You know the story we're going to look at. Those of you who were here last week, you're in 16 and you were hoping it was going to be 17. 17 has come. Uh, it is here. Now, what's really incredible about the story of the giant uh, is that the Bible literally turns into a camera. Uh, it, it zooms in on him. And the Bible wants you to see him before you hear him. It literally moves from head to toe. It starts with his height, nine feet, nine inches tall. <laughs> now, Andre the Giant is seven foot or was seven foot four. Weighed 520 pounds. He had a size 22 shoe. Those of you that remember him, young people, maybe not. He's still a legend. Memnite called him the eighth wonder of the world. When he turned 12, he was 6'3". He was so big, he left home at age 14. He comes back at age 19. His parents don't even know who he is. One finger would strike three keys on a piano. A 12-ounce can could sit and be hidden in the palm of his hand. You could take off his ring and take a silver dollar and slide it through the ring. <laughs> this is a big man. And we have a giant that's two feet bigger with some inches to spare. His helmet was bronze, which is a dull gold shape uh, color, metallic brown. Uh, everybody argues about what it looks like. Who knows? Uh, the coat of armor was also bronze. It was a body shield, front, back, 126 pounds of a flak jacket. Uh, his sword was bronze. It was slung between his shoulders. So he had it here, and it was a curved scimitar. It was like a, a, a scythe. Uh, the outer edge of the blade is sharp. So when you would swing it off, you could clear out a five-foot path and cut down everything around you within a diameter of five feet. The javelin or spear, though, was made of iron. Now, the Bronze Age was around 3500 BC. The Iron Age came in 1200 BC. It started in the Middle East. It started in this realm. And also in some parts, they think, of Europe. Just to give you an idea, iron didn't come to China until 600 BC. So iron in this area is the technological advancement of major warfare. That was his javelin. Uh, the barrel of it, it says in the, the Bible, was woven like a weaver's beam. That means it was rifled, just like a rifling of a gun barrel. Speed, accuracy. That point of the javelin weighed 17 pounds. It was meant to fly through the air and you not see it. And then when it hit you, it would go through you and then pin you to the ground. Lastly, you saw the armor plates that would cover his legs. So he literally was a nine-foot, nine-inch walking tank. One scholar said he's every inch of the new Iron Age warrior. The most technologically advanced weapon in the world is now standing before you as the camera zooms in so you see him before you hear him. Primal 
power, pure violence, undefeated, the champion, in a word, invincible. King Saul says what everyone feels in the Valley of Elah, you are not able to go against this Philistine. The giant speaks. Why have you come out to draw up for battle? Am I not a Philistine? Are you not servants of Saul? Choose a man for yourselves and let him come down to me. If he is able to fight with me and kill me, then we will be your servants. But if I prevail against him and kill him, then you'll be my servants and our servants, and you'll serve us. And the Philistine said, I defy you, Israel. Give me a man that we may fight together. Israel's on one hill. The Philistines are arrayed on another hill. The Valley of Elah is between them. The giant walks into the valley facing the mountain and the horde of Israel. And he does this two times a day for 40 days. For those of you that are mathematicians, that's 80 times he gets in front of Israel and he gives this same speech. Two times a day. The giant is seen. The giant is heard. There's one more historical point that needs to be pointed out here. Historical records will tell you that what's happening here is completely unusual. It is absolutely not normal, incredibly rare, that two armies would put their fate on one battle between two champions. Nobody did that. Nobody wanted to do that. So you have to ask yourself, though, were there any occasions in the ancient world when that would happen? And the answer is yes. And here's why, according to the historical record. Only in conflicts between the gods would this happen. Only in a cosmic conflict. The giant is seen. The giant is heard. What happens next? Please stand for the hearing of God's word. And the Philistine moved forward and he came near to David with a shield bearer in front of him. And when the Philistine looked and saw David, he disdained him. This is just like, sometimes the Bible is absolutely too polite. Absolutely, there's another word for that. For he was but a youth, ruddy and handsome in appearance. And the Philistine said to the David, am I a dog? I should say it's the translation. The Bible is not polite. Just to clarify the Philistine said to David, am I a dog that you come to me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. And the Philistine said to David, come to me and I will give your flesh to the birds of the air and the beasts of the field. And then David said to the Philistine, you come to me with a sword. You come to me with a spear and a javelin. But I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you've defied. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hand. And I will strike you down, and I will cut off your head, and I will give the dead bodies of the host of the Philistines this day to the birds of the air, the wild beasts of the earth, that all the earth may know there's a God in Israel, and that all this assembly, meaning he's turning around, and his seven brothers behind him, that all this assembly, the church, the church may know that the Lord saves not with a sword and spear, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into my hand. When the Philistine arose and came and drew near to meet David, David ran quickly toward the battle line to meet the Philistine 
David put his hand in his bag, took out a stone, slung it, and struck the Philistine on the forehead. That's the toughest part of the head right there. That's where the headbutt happens. You don't headbutt over here, right there. The stone sank into his forehead, and he fell on his face to the ground. So David prevailed over the Philistine with a sling and with a stone and struck the Philistine and killed him. There was no sword in the hand of David. Now remember, first David says, you come to me with a sword. Remember that? Now there's no sword in David's hand. What's the big deal about the sword? Why does the narrator want you to know this? Then David ran and stood over the Philistine and took his sword and drew it out of its sheath and killed him and cut off his head with it. When the Philistines saw that their champion was dead, they fled. Of course they did. And when the men of Israel and Judah rose with a shout, and they pursued the Philistines as far as Gath and the gates of Ekron, so that the wounded Philistines fell on the way from Sharim as far as Gath and Ekron. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. So, Lord, we ask that you would shine on the page, that as we saw last week, you would, by your word, rush the Holy Spirit upon us right now, upon me and everyone here, upon Pete and Park Cities. And I pray this in Jesus' name, amen. All right, so the giant is seen, the giant is heard, what happens next? Uh, let's look at verse 11, if we can, my good... Brother Malachi, there we go. Let's go to 11, verse 11. We got it. Oh, wait, no, that's not up there. That's me. You're right. That's right. We did this. Okay, so I'm going to tell you what happens. We saw what happened after he's seen and heard. Here's what was happening to four when he showed up. The first thing that happens, when Saul and all of Israel heard these words of the Philistine, they were shattered. It's a word for decreating. They started falling to pieces. And they were greatly afraid. The giant is seen. The giant is heard. What happens next? The answer is weakness. So once upon a time ago, I did campus ministry. And I did it up in the New England area. Um, it's some very prestigious schools up there, which in my mind doesn't mean anything. Um, I used to say, why are these students so special? I just don't get it. Um, they led outreaches. I led outreaches at Daytona Beach. And so what would happen is every spring break, everybody in the uh, campus ministry that I was a part of, we'd converge at Daytona Beach on spring break. And when we would do, there'd be probably anywhere from uh, 1,200 to even 2,000 college students that had come for uh, spring break in Daytona. And so one of my responsibilities as a campus minister at that time was to lead the outreaches uh, that would go out onto the beach where, you know, in those days MTV was there, Playboy was there, every uh, thing out there that would be at a, at a spring break was out there. All the booths, all the stuff, everything was out there. And so uh, I would look out upon a sea of college students, right? And what did I see? I saw, and they were shattered. <laughs> it 
because they knew what was going to happen and they were greatly afraid. As soon as I was done, I was going to open the doors and they were going to go onto the beaches and share Christ to these, this mass humanity of spring breakers. And so I was sent in to be the motivational speaker to get everybody to get up and get out and go out and share Christ. Okay? And so my favorite text was this text. Some of you probably know there. Maybe you were there when I did this. I have no idea because I see some smiles. There's other legends that have happened that I will completely deny if they, you bring that up that that happened. You'd have to ask my wife about that. Uh, I, I would say to this crowd, I'd say, listen, your Goliath is out there. Uh, the biker, the bodybuilder, the beauty queen, and all the heads are nodding. All these college students, their heads are nodding. Oh. Here's what we're going to do. It's time to slay your giants. It's time to kill your faith killers. You have a faith killer out there. And you're going to go out and share Christ with that faith killer. You're going to go out and share Christ with that giant. And it's time. And then, after everybody was all worked up, because that's what I did, we bust open the doors and everybody would be chanting, Goliath, Goliath, Goliath. <laughs> you know, face your giant. And they would run to the beaches. Now, I might be embellishing just a little bit here. Now, there's a lot wrong with this. <laughs> number one, that's not the meaning of the text, primarily. Number two, unbelieving people are not Goliath, so I need all these disclaimers. Number three, Christians are not David, and I want to ask, why are Christians always David in the story? Why do you, when you read the story, put yourself in David's place? Why aren't you the Philistines? Why aren't you Goliath? Why aren't you the shaking Israelites behind? I'm always puzzled that everyone that writes a book about David, we're David. Everyone that preaches on David and teaches on David, we're David. We're not David. You're not David. I'm not David. Number four, uh, faith is not a switch that you just turn on. Like you walk in and say, okay, folks, let's go. Boop. It's also not peer pressure because everybody's looking at each other and they don't want to be that spiritual loser that doesn't go out on the beach. So faith isn't that. But here's the number one reason what's wrong with what I did back then. That's not what happens to you when you understand the text. In other words, what happens to you if you rightly understand this text? What happens to you if you rightly believe this text? What happens to you, like, if you accurately Apply this text to your life. What happens to you if you get this text and you communicate it to others the way it's supposed to be communicated? The answer, what happens when the giant is seen? What happens when the giant is heard? The answer is weakness. You're shattered. And you're greatly afraid. All willpower is gone. When Saul and all Israel heard these words of the Philistine, they were shattered, broken, decreated, and greatly afraid. Willpower, gone. Faith, gone. Hope, gone. Love for their nation, their God, the buddy next to them, their brother, their family, gone. 
Obedience, gone. Bible verses, gone. The only thing when you see him and you hear him is weakness. Weakness. Only weakness. So I read this book a while ago. Uh, it was called, it was written by a pastor, and it's called, Who Will Deliver Us? The Present Power of the Death of Christ. He's now a pastor of pastors. He's an 80-something-year-old pastor. And what he does primarily is that he has shattered, beat-down, broken-down, fearful pastors come see him. And he sits there and he listens to them as they tell their sad stories. And he would say that they rarely look him in the eye. It's usually down at the desk or at their hands or at their lap or off to the side while they give a sad tale of being shattered and broken and beat down and greatly afraid. And then we're done. When they finally finish, they look up and they catch the pastor and he's looking them right in the eye. And he says several things. The first is, welcome to the human race. When Saul and all of Israel heard these words of the Philistine, they were shattered, broken, decreated, greatly afraid. Of course, of course they are. Welcome to the human race. You are weak. You're shattered. You're broken. You're decreated. You're greatly afraid. Welcome to the human race. The giant is seen. The giant is heard. What happens next? I think we have this one, 48. Malachi, we get that one up there? Here we go. When the Philistine arose and came and drew near to meet David, David ran quickly toward the battle line to meet the Philistine. And David put his hand in his bag, took out a stone, slung it, struck the Philistine on the forehead. The stone sank into his forehead. He fell on his face to the ground. This battle scene that we're looking at right now has 36 verbs. 36. Soon as we see. So first you see him, then you hear him. The appropriate, the next thing that happens is everyone experiences weakness. But then the next thing that happens is 36 verbs, 36 actions, 36 arose, came, drew near, ran, meet, put, took, slung, struck, sank, fell. What happens next? Speed happens. Action happens. Power happens. Strength happens. But don't miss this. Israel does nothing but be weak, but have no faith, but have no hope, but have no love, but fall to pieces, be overwhelmed by overwhelming, harmful, painful emotions like fear and anxiety, despair, hopelessness. But in weakness, Israel does one thing. 
they watched David fight for them. They watched David run, meet, put, take, sling, strike for them. They watched David prevail, stand, kill, cut off for them. They watched 36 action verbs for them. And it's not even on the surface of the text. It's not in the grammar of the text, but it's hidden into the underbelly of the text. It's actually in the heart of this guy called David because what they're also watching is someone trust God for them. Someone obey God for them. Someone who has strength and power in God for them. Someone that loves for them. Someone that has hope for them. Someone that endures for them. Someone that obeys for them. Someone who does for them, works for them, achieves for them, fights for them. David is their strength. David is Israel's strength. David is his brother's strength. They watch their strength fight for them. Now, what happens while they watch? This is so fascinating. It's absolutely mind-blowing. Sometimes we quickly, I mean, we're all set to get to this moment, and we get to this moment, and it's beyond even our expectations. But then we miss this little, like, footnote, this little, like, two verses at the end of it that are just like, okay, that's great. Good for you, boys. Everybody gets a participation trophy. It goes like this. And the men of Israel and Judah rose with a shout and pursued the Philistines as far as Gath and the gates of Ekron, so that the wounded Philistines fell on the way from Sharim as far as Gath and Ekron. What happens as Israel watches David fight for them? Answer, they're brought to life in David. They rise in David. They they live... They move, they endure, they love, they hope, they fight in David. The giant is seen. The giant is heard. What happens next? Strength happens. David fights for them. All eyes on David. Now you know why Jesus is the son of David. Because Jesus fights for you. Jesus fights for you. I'm just going to end with some practical help. I mean, the textual Jesus is all over this text, right? By now, everybody knows, good night. Yeah, I'm not David. I'm not a redemptive agent. I'm not the anointed one, right? Remember how we saw last week that that when you read David and you read these stories about these redemptive agents, you have to be really, really careful because sometimes the text leads with the redemptive agent part. Sometimes the text leads with the fellow fallen worshiper part. Now, when David's on his roof and he's looking at Bathsheba, that's you. But when David's fighting Goliath, that's someone else. That's a redemptive agent. That means he's a pointer to something else. And that's why the Bible will say not only is Jesus and ancestor of David, but will call him the title, the son of David, the anointed one. 
In fact, in Romans, when Paul begins his great letter, what he does very meticulously is he about ready to expound the greatest book on the gospel ever written. In other words, the first, you have Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. You have Jesus, his divine events on display in action. And then the letters come and they tell you what it means. And in Romans, it unpacks more than any other book, the wonders of all that Jesus has accomplished in his life, his death, his resurrection. All that he's done to fight for you, Romans is telling you, this is what it means. This is what he fought for. In the very few verses, what Paul wants to do is he wants to show how Jesus, in his flesh, is the son of David. Well, now we know why. So here's some practical help. All eyes on Jesus. Watch Jesus fight for you. The only way you're going to make it in this life, the only way you're going to make it, as we're going to look at here in a second, with giants that are much greater than, than this giant, the only way you're going to survive, the only way you're going to rise and run, the only way you can live this Christian life, the only way you're going to survive in a culture like this is all eyes on Jesus. Watch Jesus fight for you. And as you do, things start happening. Number one, this is how you're going to know God. This is the only way you're going to know God. How do I know that? Because the text says that. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hand. I will strike you down, cut off your head. I will give the dead bodies of the host of the Philistines this day to the birds of the air, the wild beasts of the earth. Why, David? Why will you be the deliverer? Why will you be the anointed champion? Why will you be a redemptive agent? Answer, that all the earth may know. That there is a God in Israel. And that word know is such a fascinating word. It means that the knowledge passes into your soul. That as you watch a redemptive agent who's just a pointer to the ultimate redemptive agent, you figure out who God is. Who God is passes into your soul. You have understanding about who the living God is. Do you want to know if God lives? Do you want to know if he's real? Do you want to know if he's with you and for you? All eyes on Jesus, and you'll know that. I want to know, do you love me? Are you near me? Are you with me? Are you for me? Good times and bad times. All eyes on Jesus. Watch Jesus fight for you, and you'll know. You know what happens so many times is that we don't have all eyes on Jesus and we don't watch Jesus fight for us when we're in tough times and we wonder where he is. But the Bible's really, really clear. You're not going to find who God is. You're not going to know who he is. You're not going to get an accurate assessment that he's living and active and present and with you and for you and that he loves you by looking at your circumstances. It's never going to happen. You're not going to have it by looking at what's happening outside in the world. It's never going to happen. The only place you're going to know God, that it's going to pass into your soul, that it's going to be real, that you're going to know his grace and his mercy, and you're going to know what he's really like, and you're going to know that in such a way that you're going to be okay, is in the gospel. All eyes on Jesus. Watch Jesus fight for you. Second, the only way to deal with the greater giant is to have your eyes on Jesus and watch him fight for you. What is the greater giant? The Bible tells us it's sin, death, hell, and primal evil, supernatural evil. 
We leave that one off. I don't know why. Verse 47, can we look at that? And that all this assembly, David is still speaking, right? And all this assembly may know that the Lord saves, not by the sword or the spear, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into our hand, into my hand. Here's the deal. If you're a Christian, you are now in a battle you cannot lose. If you are not a Christian right now, you are in a battle you cannot win. You will never win the battle of sin. You will never win the battle of death. You will never win the battle of hell. You will never win the battle of primal evil. For the battle is the Lord's. Remember we talked about the sword, why the sword was such a big deal? I didn't see it before, but you know that, did you notice that David doesn't kill the giant with the, with the stone? Did you see that? I don't know why. I've read this text. As you know, I've read this text. I've used it many times to help motivate people to go share Christ. And I never noticed that the stone didn't kill him. The stone just knocked him out. That's why David ran towards him, grabs the enemy's own sword, cuts off his head. You know what's interesting? David kills the giant with his own weapon. Do you know what Jesus does to the greater giant? He kills the greater giant with its own weapons. What do you mean, Jeff? What do you mean, Bible? I mean this. He defeats sin by becoming sin. He defeats death by his death. He defeats hell by swallowing it. And he defeats primal evil by being condemned and being enslaved to them. And by doing that, he cuts off their head. Watch Jesus fight for you, all eyes on Jesus. Lastly, this is the only way to arise and run. You can only rise and run when you are brought to life in Jesus. As your eyes are on him, as you watch him run, you come alive. You arise and run. When you watch, you arise. When you watch, you run. That's the Christian life. That's how you grow. That's how you change. If you're ever going to make any headway in a particular sin in your life, watch. All eyes on Jesus. Arise and run. If you're going to make any headway in enduring very hard things without relief, maybe in this life, watch. Eyes, all eyes on Jesus. You arise and run. It's the only way. Lastly, here's how I'm going to end. In case you're wondering, did you know that David isn't impressed with David? It's really pretty phenomenal. David wasn't impressed with himself. There are many times that he was. He actually like wanted to know how many people were in his army, how many people were in his kingdom, and just read that and find out what happens when that happens. 
But most of the time, let's just say in this snapshot of his life, he's not impressed with himself at all. In fact, he loves to point to the son of David, his greater son. Isn't that interesting? I read this the other day, and I've been really sitting in Psalm 18. It says this in verse 1. It just, it just startled me. I'm like, gosh, I've never seen that in the Bible like that. He starts off. You ready? Psalm 18, verse 1. I love you, Lord. so jarring. And I went, I love you, Lord. Whoa, okay. How? Why does he love the Lord? How, does, how do you get genuine love for God? Have you ever wondered that? How do you love God? Christian, how do you love God? If you're not, and you're, you're skeptic, and you're thinking about this, like Luther did at one time, how do you love God? Because Luther said, love him, I hate him. How do you love him? Genuinely, answer, I love you, O Lord, because you are my strength. You know what that means? David gets it. Only weak people love God. Because only weak people watch someone strong fight for them. And they can't help it. They love him back. I'm done. Let me pray for us.